Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today we're talking with founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After, Tim Kachuriak. Tim's fundraising agency has conducted nearly 3,000 experiments as it relates to first-hand research to over 1,000 nonprofits across nine countries in digital fundraising. Tim is also the author of the book Optimize Your Fundraising. He is a board member and is a frequent speaker at international fundraising conferences around the world. Tim, welcome. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's so great to have you here. So to get started, tell us about how your career started in the nonprofit sector and how this led you to founding Next After. Yeah. So um, I took, like mo- many, a very indirect pathway into the nonprofit space. So I, I graduated from college uh, right after um, the events of 9-11 here in the U.S., which was a really difficult time to enter into the job force, especially for somebody who desperately wanted to work in the field of marketing and advertising. Uh, but fortunately, I worked at a, a golf country club all during high school and college. So I like to joke I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. And so I went and called Uncle Joe. Uh, and Uncle Joe was the president of the country club. He's the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And I said, hey, Joe, can I come meet with you? He said, sure. So I came down and talked to him and did my little dog and pony show. And he's like, oh, kid, I'd love to hire you. But you know what? We just laid off 30 people yesterday. You see, 9-11 hit our industry harder, agency harder, and sorry, I just can't help you. And so that was my experience, like graduating college and for six months, just trying to find somebody to give me a shot. Uh, ended up meeting a, a serial entrepreneur, uh, actually at a golf outing, of all things. And uh, he said, maybe you could do a couple little projects for you know, some of my little startups. I said, that sounds great. He said, you know what? Why don't you start a business? I said, well, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, I do. <clears throat> We've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner and the rest is up to you, kids. So I was like, sounds great. So I did that for about five years. I started this company called Ambience Interactive. And we just did, we started off just doing general marketing services. And then we kind of gravitated more towards the digital side of things and became a boutique that a lot of general market ad agencies would outsource their digital stuff to. And about five years in, I just, uh, I got a little restless, right? So. Um, I love what I was doing, but I wasn't like super excited about the clients we had. Not that they were bad. You know, we had a lot of legal clients and automotive dealerships and, um, but I was always a cause guy. You know what I mean? Like I was always like somebody that just wanted to do something that made a difference in the world. And so, um, around that time, my church was doing a a capital campaign to raise funds to build a new building. And so I said, well, I can volunteer to, help out with that. And uh, our agency did all like the marketing materials for that. It was the first time I did something that I felt like I was really good at, but for a cause I cared about. And I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I ended up uh, in a matter of probably about, I don't know, six months after that, I sold my business. Uh, We sold our house. I moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I went to work for a nonprofit organization. And that's what kind of got me in the space. And while I was there, uh, we had a direct response agency that did all of our fundraising. 
And that was the first time that I realized that there's basically like these marketing agencies that work exclusively with nonprofits. And I was like, you know, I want one. <laughs> so I had to went to work for one. We got acquired by another one. And then eventually I left to, to start next after. Yeah, well, great overview. A very interesting story. Thanks for sharing that. So give us an overview of your agency next after and the work you and your team does. Sure. So next after, um, it's really three things. So we're a fundraising uh, research lab, we're a consultancy, and we're a training institute. And I'll kind of like briefly describe those three different pillars and how they fit together. Starting first with the fundraising research lab, we do two kinds of research, both forensic research and applied. And what I mean by forensic research, we're going out and we're analyzing large amounts of data across the nonprofit sector. What we're looking for in the data is patterns that lead to opportunities to unlock greater digital fundraising performance. So we're hyper, hyper, hyper focused around digital. We believe like many is the future of fundraising, but it's still an underdeveloped opportunity in the space. The challenge, however, we run into is that the kind of data that we're most interested in analyzing either doesn't exist or it's not readily accessible. And that's because what we're most interested in is trying to experience the charity, the nonprofit, the NGO from the donor's point of view. So we found the best way to get that perspective is just by becoming donors ourselves. And so that's what we do about four times a year. We'll launch one of these major mystery donor studies, subscribe to hundreds of organizations, monitor everything they send us, that we wait for them to ask us to give. And then we go online, we give a donation and we continue to monitor the communications. And what we end up finding is it's like a wildly varying experience from organization to organization. We see all these gaps. We see all these things that are happening in this market vertical that's not happening over here. And it just raises a lot of questions. And when you have questions, uh, what we've found, the best way to get answers to those is by turning to the web and turning it into a laboratory. So that's the applied research side is where we use the web as a living laboratory to run rigorous scientific experiments with nonprofits, with NGOs, to test and find out what works and what doesn't when it comes to digital. So that's the, the research side. We, we take everything we learn in the research lab, we bring it over to the two other parts of our company. The second is the Next After Institute, which is the training and equipping arm of Next After. Uh, we turn all the research and insights into templates and guides and tools. We've developed eight different certification courses in all matters of digital fundraising. And we host uh, an annual conference every year called the Nonprofit Innovation Optimization Summit, where we bring in digital marketing leaders from all over the world. Most of them come from the for-profit space to go breathe new ideas, new life into our nonprofit community. And then the last piece is simply um, Next After's consultancy, which is really a digital first agency. So we focus uh, on working directly with, uh, I think we've got about 38, 39 clients, primarily across North America, but we have a few overseas and we work with them to engineer into their fundraising programs the things that we've tested and validated that work effectively. Yeah, great. And for listeners uh, listening in, do check out the Next After website. It's got an incredible amount of uh, resources in there and templates, as uh, Tim's just shared. So it's really good. You can see all the research you've done, which is quite incredible. Now, your role is the Chief Innovation and Optimization Officer. So give us an overview of what your role entails. Well, yeah, it's, it's changed over the years. I mean, when you start a business and you're the only employee, like you do a little bit of everything, right? So I used to be the guy that would go get the customers and, you know, go and service them and go do the accounting and send out the invoices and pay all the bills. And, you know, and as our company has grown, uh, my role has shifted dramatically. Um, and so today, really what I'm focused on, if most of the people inside of our company are kind of contributing to the painting, right? My job is to really stretch the canvas. I'm the one that's saying, where are we going next? 
how do we actually develop new solutions to fundraising challenges and make the existing solutions more effective? So that's my primary role. Uh, I also lead most of the new business development. So if anybody you know, ends up working with us, they usually talk to me at some point. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I see myself. All right, well, let's go into all things digital fundraising now. So just to start, how has digital fundraising changed over the past 10 years? Yeah, so the biggest change is that digital is really receiving a larger percentage of the pie. Um, and we've seen this especially uh, last year in 2020. Uh, last year, so uh, BlackBud, every year they publish their charitable giving report. And for the first time ever, digital was more than 10% of total revenue uh, for nonprofits. It, it was actually 13%. So it was the first time it actually crossed 10 and it actually like soared past 10 to 13%. And you think about like why, well, you know, there's been all of this, you know, experimentation and testing has been done by different organizations. They've gotten different levels of success. But what happened in 2020 is we took away a lot of the, the typical tools that nonprofits use. Events didn't happen. There's not, there wasn't face-to-face -face meetings anymore happening. Like even some mail programs were struggling initially until things kind of like opened up. But um, digital really became the nonprofit lifeline in 2020. So I'd say that there was a lot of little shifts over the last 10 years and a big one that occurred in 2020. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to go back 10 years. You only have to go back to um, the beginning of last year to really say, show how it's changed. And uh, your agency is doing such great work. You and your team, as I said in the introduction, have conducted nearly 3,000 experiments um, spanning over 280 million donor interactions uh, with the research you have done with over 1,000 charities across nine countries. What have you found motivates people to give? Wow, what a, what a deep question. I mean, that's a question that really I've become obsessed with um, probably for the last 15 years. And what I'm finding is, you know, first of all, giving is a very irrational decision. Like it doesn't make sense. Like if, if aliens landed from another planet today and I had to explain to them like giving to charity. So like you give your money and like you don't really get anything tangible in return, but you kind of feel good. You know what I mean? They're like does not compute, does not make sense, right? It doesn't make rational sense. So there must be some deeper motivation behind it. And there's a lot of really interesting work happening in the area of philanthropic psychology. And there's, there's different theories as to why people give, right? So some people give out of a sense of responsibility, especially older generations. It's duty, it's responsibility. I've been, you know, like, this is my, my sacred trust is to go and make sure that I can you know, provide for my children and grandchildren. That's one reason people give. Uh, other people give out of a sense of, of belonging. They want to be part of something, part of a movement or part of a community, right, where they can identify with. Some people give as an extension of their identity, right? They give so that they can say to the world, here is who I am, here's what I care about, and here's how I want to project my values into the marketplace. Some people give out of anger, especially uh, people that give to like political campaigns and causes. They're all mad, they're angry, they're frustrated by this thing that's happening or not happening. And so they're gonna go give to this organization to go make sure that that change happens in the world. So when answering the question, what motivates and inspires people to give, it's really not one answer, but it's a collection of answers, it's a collective. And I think that's the biggest challenge for us as fundraisers is that we try to make things super neat, super compact and fit into little tiny boxes. Um, but the problem is it's not that tidy, right? And that's where really personalization and customization, the lessons we can learn from like the Netflix and the apples of the world of where they're taking the data from people's interaction with their products and they're making it a more personalized experience. That's where philanthropy I think is headed.
Yeah, really good answer. And there's little things that uh, nonprofits can do to always help encourage donors to give. So one of those areas is having an engaging website. What key components go into creating a high converting donation page? Oh, great. Okay, we're going to get the super tactical part of the conversation. So uh, one of the things that we've tested over and over again is obviously donation pages, right? That's where all the action happens. So the first thing you have to understand is that on average, across the nonprofit sector, less than 25% of people that click the donate button in the upper part of your website and get to the donation page actually complete the transaction. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, why is that? And the reason why is because even when they click that button, they haven't fully made their decision to give, right? And it's not just one decision, it's a collection of decisions. So the way that we think about a donation page or even online fundraising is it's a series of micro decisions that leads to the macro decision. So if our macro decision is to get somebody to complete a donation, when they've gotten to the donation page, they're, they're almost there, but there's still a, a series of decisions they have to make. For example, how much do I wanna give? That's one decision. How do I wanna pay? That's another decision. Do I wanna make this a one-time gift or a recurring regular gift? That's another decision. Um, do I wanna designate my gift in some way and personalize my gift? Do I wanna make it a gift, a memorial of somebody? These are all micro decisions that people make even on your donation page. So the biggest question we have to ask ourselves is, are we doing an adequate job of answering that question? So let me give you one very, very tactical thing for your listeners. This is something that every single uh, person listening can think about. Go to your donation page, and uh, read all the different, all the copy that exists on the page, all the text. And what you may find is that you don't have a lot of text. And I'm gonna tell you that that's probably the biggest thing affecting your conversion. So we have run experiment after experiment where we've actually taken what I call a naked donation page, which is just a donation form and a, you know, a, a title that says donate now. And we've put like paragraphs of the text explaining the reasons why somebody should give their gifts. Now you might think, well, by the time they click the donate button, they already know those reasons. Well, they don't. <laughs> and even if they do know them, when they get to your donation page, they're encountering a lot of friction, the mental costs associated with filling out your stupid form, right? And so using text to continue to sell the value of their gift and the impact it's going to have can have a huge difference. We've done that where we put lots of text on the donation page versus no text. 100, 200, 300, 400% increase in donation conversion. And you might ask, okay, what kind of text do I want to put on the, on the donation page? Well, uh, another exercise you can do is write out the answer to one simple question. If I am the ideal donor, why should I give to you rather than some other organization or not at all? And the reason why it's important for you to have a good answer to that question is because that is the question that every single donor needs to hear the answer to, but they're never going to verbalize it. So if we can anticipate it and we can actually respond by having uh, an answer to that question, you will find that you'll get a lot more conversions on your donation page. Uh, that's a really great piece of advice. And I love how that you and your team have uh, conducted this research over 1000 nonprofits, which is incredible. And as part of these micro steps, do you have any advice on how fundraisers or nonprofits can be better at driving traffic to their donation pages through highly engaging content? Sure. Uh, let's start again with something super easy anybody can do. So if you look at the navigation of your website up at the top, 
Uh, most organizations will have a donate button or give button or something. Um, look at that and see, is it different from the rest of your navigation? Like, so for example, if you have five different navigation items and they're all exactly the same, what I would suggest is making the donate, you know, you know, option different. Make it, if it's, if none of them are buttons, make it a button. You know, if it's, if they're all buttons, like make it a different color button from the rest. We've run those tests and we find that just doing something as simple as that can increase traffic, like sometimes over a hundred percent to the donation page. So simple little things like that can make a difference, but probably the best way to drive effective traffic is through email. So one of the big things that we talk about and we've researched and we've discovered is that the size and quality of your email file is the number one predictive indicator of your ability to raise a lot of money online. So my question for you is, are you doing things to actively grow your email subscriber file? And that may not be, um, and it may simply just be having an email newsletter, but that's something that everybody can do. So my question is, how can you take your content, your, your, your stories, repackage them, repurpose them, turn them into something that the donor is willing to trade or prospective donor is willing to trade their email address for? And when you do that, then there's simple things you could do to improve the engagement of your email campaigns. Um, so for example, one thing that we've tested over and over and over again, we've done it in different countries, different languages, we've tested the design of the email itself. So if you look at most uh, nonprofit fundraising emails, they're very HTML intensive, meaning lots of graphics, images, buttons, uh, multiple calls to action. And the problem with that is that when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And donors don't wanna be marketed to. Nobody wants to be marketed to. We wanna be communicated with. And so what we've tested over and over again and found incredibly powerful is getting rid of the images, getting rid of the graphics, getting rid of the buttons, scraping away all the marketing veneer and sending what looks more like a plain text email and even rewriting the email so it sounds like it's coming from one human to another human has huge implications, three, four, 500% increase in donation conversion. And the reason why uh, is two reasons, or actually it's multiple little reasons, one big reason. When you have a very highly designed email and it's going and it's being sent to these different email service providers like Gmail and Yahoo uh, and Hotmail, the reason uh, that your email uh, is not getting as much engagement is because it's being put in the promotions tab or the spam you know, box. But if you send a plain text email, you'll have a better chance of that email going directly into the inbox. So that's one major reason why it's more effective. But two is this, this idea that people give to people, not to email machines, not to websites, not to direct mail campaigns for that matter. People give to people. And the more that we can humanize our communications and make it feel more relational, the more effective it'll be. Great advice. I, I had about two questions in there, but you managed to answer them along the way. So th thank you for that. <laughs> but um, you talk about lead generation and having a strong lead generation campaign. Uh, what steps should be in place when acquiring new donors and getting those emails from prospective donors? So, I mean, the biggest source today, and a lot of this is changing with the iOS uh, update, but uh, Facebook is an incredibly powerful source for new, new, new name and new donor acquisition. And the reason why is because it's so uh, easy to target people based on interest, affinity, based on lookalikes of your existing donors. 
And you don't have to bet the farm. You don't have to make huge commitments of capital. I mean, like as a, any good business owner or any good like nonprofit, we are in the business of stewarding and protecting our capital at all costs. So if I have to go put like a million pieces in the mail to see if something works, or if I can go spend $500 on Facebook and test different ads and look at you know, what the response are, I mean, I'd much rather do something small and then be able to scale it up. So we've used Facebook primarily, not like the, the Facebook fundraisers or anything like that. I want to use Facebook to get people to my website. And when I get them to my website, I want to be presenting them on Facebook with various different free offers. So download, click to download this free ebook or click to take this online quiz or, or click to take our free online course or click to sign this petition. Anything that's going to take them out of Facebook to my landing page and give them a very specific call to action and a value proposition to trade their email address for either advocacy, act, uh, activism, uh, you know, for content or for other types of you know, benefits. So like doing that and then using that initial step of interest to then engage that prospective donor in an opportunity to give towards the cause. And you mentioned uh, Facebook as being a great tool to be able to do this low cost and um, high converting. Are there any other emerging comms channels or digital channels that fundraisers should be aware of to be engaging with donors? Because there's quite a few out there these days. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of you know really interesting things happening, like you know with like the clubhouse and you know with like uh, you know TikTok and everything. I just I, I guess the the biggest challenge is if we focus on just reach and not focus on, on like value creation. I sometimes, I think we get a little bit sideways. So um, what I mean by that is there's lots of ways to get a message out there to market. But if I, unless, you know, from a fundraising perspective, unless I can get names, donors, and dollars um, or, or create a linkage to getting names, donors, dollars. So like we could have some sort of strategy where we're putting content out in some of these other various channels and it's almost kind of like brand cover, right? Um, but unless I have a pathway to get names, donors, and dollars, it's ultimately not going to help me in my fundraising. So I, I would just say I'd be careful with a lot of that. I mean, we're doing a lot more with, uh, with Google ads and using different ad networks to try to like reach people. But it's really focused around trying to build that email list because that is the number one driver of online fundraising revenue. Yeah, yeah. And keep it simple. That's really great advice. And what would you say is the biggest opportunity missed by nonprofits to scale and maximize their fundraising efforts? Yeah. So one thing that I think is a challenge for most nonprofits, and, and I don't want to speak, um, you know, I'm just speaking for like, you know, nonprofits that we serve here in the US, is that we enter into like these annual budgeting cycles, right? So we say, okay, you know, our budget this year is, uh, you know, a million dollars, right, for fundraising, okay? And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how good my results are or how bad they are, I'm going to spend a million dollars, right? And the problem with that is that, it leaves on the table the opportunity. Uh, yeah, what's what it's leaving on the on the table the opportunity to actually like reinvest revenue that comes in from like say new donor acquisition back into that fund. So what we've been coaching a lot of our clients on and seeing dramatic results is moving to what we call a net loss acquisition budget. So you say, okay, I'm going to spend you know ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million dollars on acquisition, whatever that number is, right? I'm willing to lose that amount of money on acquisition because I know that every time I acquire a donor, it's usually happening at you know, a net cost to the organization, right? And what I'm 
really betting on and banking on is the lifetime value of that donor over time. See, we talk about lifetime value, but we don't make decisions based on it. And so what the, the net loss budgeting looks like is say I have a million dollars to lose on, on uh, acquisition and I run my acquisition campaign and I spend my million dollars and it generates $600,000 of revenue. That $600,000 of revenue gets plunked back into the acquisition budget. And so if you keep rinsing and repeating, rinsing, repeating, I can take $1 million and turn it into $5 million worth of impact, right? Which means that I can scale and grow my organization so much faster because I'm not locked into this whole, just, you know, here's my budget amount for the year and that's it, right? So like, that's a big thing that I think everybody can think about and start talking to their board and to their leadership about moving to this different cycle that's really focused more on like lifetime value creation as opposed to short-term 12-month annual budget cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about lifetime value as a really important metric. How can nonprofits be measuring lifetime value and how can they find these metrics? How can they continually monitor this? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple way to calculate lifetime value is if you take the two-year revenue value for uh, a donor, so taking, you know, um, all of their giving, say, in fiscal 19 and fiscal 20, um, and then dividing it by the two-year donor attrition rate, that is going to compute what your actual projected lifetime value is of your donor. I think it's projecting like a five-year lifetime value. So it's not like forever, but it's going to give you some sort of sense of that. And once you have that number, then you can say, okay, here's what my cost to acquire a donor is, right? And over the lifetime, over this five-year span, what kind of ROI do I need to receive in order to make my organization, you know, moving forward and growing, right? And then you can kind of start to set budget targets based off of that projection. So that's, that's a simple way to calculate it. There's lots of, there's a long way to calculate it, but that's a simple way, which is using two years of revenue, two years of attrition. And a nice way to say it without having to pull out diagrams and spreadsheets. Absolutely. So, <laughs> right. so for, um, right. for small nonprofits listening, wondering where yes. they can begin and implement, implementing their first digital fundraising strategy, where should they start? I, you know, I think the best thing to do is, I mean, you probably have a website. So one simple thing to do is maybe just do that, um, that donation uh, button kind of like change, like look at that and say, is there something I can change to my, to my, donation button to get more people to click to the website. I told you we've run tests and it's increased traffic sometimes as much as 100% just by changing the look of that. The second thing I would say is, okay, look at your donation page and what does it say on your donation page? Go through that value proposition exercise. Use it as like a, a, like a board exercise or a leadership exercise. Like have everybody write down the answer to that question, compare notes, and then use that to, to rewrite the copy that's on your donation page. And then the third thing I would say is like, start collecting email addresses, right? If you have uh, an email newsletter, great. Promote it more on your website. Uh, if you have content, if you produce any sort of content and you can repackage that, repurpose it into uh, something like an ebook or something like that, start with that and then just start small. I mean, you know, maybe you have a hundred dollars that you could spend on Facebook, but just get small little wins track your data and then go back and continue to bring that back to your leadership. And what, what I'm, what I've found just by doing all these different experiments is like, we'll go into an organization and we think we're going there to optimize landing pages or their email program. And what happens is that when we start to show them the results and the data, and we start stacking these green arrows on top of each other, what we really end up uh, really optimizing is the culture of the organization. 
they get a greater appetite for testing and experimentation and bigger, bolder thinking. And the conversation shifts from like, how am I going to get this done? How are we going to do this? How am I going to keep all the plates spinning to like, man, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? What if our donors really care about this? And it's such a more exciting work environment. So I would say just start small and just like learn to be absolutely laser focused on tracking every single thing you're doing and then socializing it back within the organization. Be your own best self-promoter and it will completely change the culture of your organization. People will become more open and more excited about testing bigger and bolder things in the future. Yeah, that's really great advice. And I have to ask, it might be a bit of a broad question, but you've conducted so much research. What have been some of your more mind-blowing results that you've seen from the experiments that you've run that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, one in particular. So um, everybody believes that video is a superior medium to text, right? Um, and it really is. It's, it's quite engaging. It's a whole completely different kind of experience when you're able to see and hear. And I mean, it's just diff different kind of articulation of a message. But for some reason, every time we've tested a video on a donation page versus a text transcript of that same video content, the text outperforms the video. Sometimes, I mean, the highest I've ever seen is 560% higher increase in donor conversion with text over video. And to me, it's like, why? It doesn't even make sense. And one time I was showing the results to a client and he's the head of a university. Um, he's like, well, I get it. I totally understand. He said, you know why the text outperforms the video? Because my reading bit rate is much faster than the video bit rate. What he means is I can actually read, scan, and actually like pull out value from text faster than I have to sit through like listening to the video. And also reading is more active than passive. Also, if you think about it, actually reading is more empathetic because it allows the, the reader to, to create their own pictures inside their head, right? As opposed to us using our director or an actor to portray, you know, some sort of, you know, message, you know, or even just like, you know, real life, you know, footage. So it's just kind of creates a more personalized experience, which I was like, wow, that's a really interesting way to think about that. So that's a big one. One other simple one, this actually is a simple little hack that everybody can do. When we've done screen recordings of donors giving donations on a, on a donation uh, site, uh, what we find is as they're going through the filling out the payment form, you know, it takes like three seconds to fill out first name, five seconds to fill out last name, you know, maybe 10 seconds to fill out address, when they get down to the payment form, it takes like two minutes, right? And they pause and there's like all of this kind of like waiting time. And if you think about it, that's the most anxiety induced part of the giving experience. You got to fumble around, get your payment card or your bank card or whatever it is. And, and then you got decisions to make of how much I'm going to get your, you know, like all that stuff. And then there's like always that, like, and especially for older donors, there's this point of like, is this really secure? Am I really, you know, is my dollars really going to go where they say they're going to go? So we did a simple thing. We shaded that area of the payment form and we put a little lock icon in the corner. That's all we did. Now, both the control, the existing page and this treatment, this new page that has the shaded box and the lock were, had the same level of, of encryption and security and all that stuff. But by visually reminding people, 16% increase in donor conversion. So simple things like that just kind of blow me away. Like, wow, I can't believe that that can make such a difference. 
Yeah, and especially the video one as well. I mean, the amount of time and budget that can go into creating video and you're going to make more impact by just having that text there is incredible and something that should really be tested for nonprofits out there. And what stands out as one of your favorite success stories working with a char- charity at Next After? Wow. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the first organizations that I worked with personally, and this is like when I was actually serving the account, um, it was a historical association. They had been around for 150 years and they, their membership or, you know, their membership, their donor base, like languished at about 2000 members for the last 50 years. And yet when I started to do my research and looking at their web analytics, I realized that they're getting like between 250 and 500,000 visits to their website every single month. I was like, wow. And the reason why is because they had lots of content on areas that people were really interested in. And so seeing that, I, I saw this huge opportunity to like, you know, grow their membership base just by using their existing traffic. And we created all these different offers and tests and experiments and, and like it quadrupled their membership in the first, like, you know, four months of the, of the engagement. And like, to me, that was like so exciting because it was a pretty small organization and just being able to like go and use existing assets. They had content for days. I mean, they had content galore. And just repackaging that, repurposing that and taking an organization that honestly was on the verge of closing shop and turning them into a vibrant uh, growing organization is probably one of the most fruitful things. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, using the existing traffic. Why not? That's such a great story. And back to you now quickly. You're also an active board member for um, for areas such as Blackboard Institute for Philanthropic Impact, Southern Methodist University, Open Doors USA, and Human Coalition. How have these commitments helped you in the work that you do? I, I think it really helps me to understand uh, the perspective at the leadership level of like really the challenges for, for um, nonprofit organizations to grow. Um, you know, the different boards give me kind of like different perspectives on, on actually how those decisions are made. And so I think it's helped us to really kind of like reframe our, our, our message and say, look, this is not just about trying to optimize your donation page, right? This is really about trying to optimize the culture of the organization so that you can be one of the innovators in the space. So you can be those organizations that are going to go lead the way for the future of philanthropy. And so I think that's, that's probably the most helpful thing. But it also kind of helped me develop empathy for, you know, our clients, right? Because they have to go into like, you know, the room with like the, the 12 angry people and have to go and get them to sign on the dotted line to go test something new and crazy. So it just, it helps me really just help them and coach them and equip them. So when they go into that meeting, they're armed with data, they're armed with like all the tools they need to be able to go and, you know, make it happen. And where do you see yourself and next after in the next 10 years? What are you working towards? Well, uh, right now, a lot of our um, work, as I mentioned, is like focused in North America. And so I'm really interested in like trying to explore and learn and figure out how we can syndicate the things that we're learning and learn from like other regions. So um, last year, um, we partnered with salesforce.org and they sponsored a very large mystery donor study that encompasses nine different countries and like four different languages, the global online fundraising scorecard. We published that this year. And um, it was really insightful. It just like showed that there's a lot of opportunity to apply some of the things that, that we've learned here 
through our testing lab uh, into other markets. It also gave us a whole bunch of insights of the other things that we could go test. So what I'm kind of interested in is trying to form like a, a global coalition of like fundraising optimizers all over the world. And I want to like actually like just create this huge knowledge share. So yes, we've got like our, our research lab where we run all of our tests and we have them all published out there. But I, we built a tool that enables other organizations to do the same thing and publish them. And we can continue to learn from each other and continue to evolve our understanding of, of what works and what doesn't. So that's kind of where I think we're headed is kind of like this, this whole idea of, of global impact. Uh, it sounds great. And the impact that your work's having is huge. So well done to you and your team. And before I get down to the final question as well, uh, just to provide another resource for our listeners out there, you've, you're also, you've also written a book called Optimize Your Fundraising. And you did mention in that answer just before about the online fundraising scorecard. Is, um, is that, yeah, and you were co-author and lead researcher for that. Can you give us an overview of your books and what fundraisers can expect to get out of them? Yeah. I mean, as, as the title suggests, Optimize Your Fundraising is, is really just kind of like walking through the things that we've tested in the first six years of our existence um, and found to be effective. So it kind of walks through a systematic approach to really growing traffic, conversion, and average gift. Those are the three key components that drive online revenue. And it kind of walks through that whole process and how you can apply it to your own organization. The Global Online Fundraising Scorecard is a study that we did where we, we you know, gave gifts to 500 different organizations across nine different countries and monitored the engagement um, and the communication we received from all of those organizations for a period of uh, six months. And so it's really insightful just to kind of see the variances from country to country, from region to region, from organization to organization. And there's lots of really great insights and things that you can go take and test and try for yourself. So those are both great resources. Well, we are down to the final question, Tim. And I wanted to say before then, thank you so much for sharing your insight and knowledge with us on Fulfilled today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? I'd say the most important thing you can do is to stay curious, right? I mean, like, I would say that the thing that has driven me and, and like led me to this cause that I am so completely married to, and it's something that's big enough and bold enough to captivate my imagination for the rest of my life is this insatiable curiosity as to why do people give. So I would say for everybody out there, never stop questioning, never stop asking, never stop learning because you never know uh, what's going to lead to your next breakthrough. 